we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. This is Mark Krikorian, the executive director of the center. And remember to stay tuned after our interview for my commentary. But before that, we have Art Arthur, who is a legal analyst here at the center, has been doing immigration for longer than many of you have been alive. He's been an attorney with an INS, an immigration judge, a Hill staffer who wrote a lot of the current immigration laws. And what I wanted Art to talk about now is not a specific news event or report or anything, but rather to give us kind of a basic 101 class on what is the story with detention of immigrants. This is something the advocacy groups have been talking about and pushing for a long time to end the detention of immigrants. They don't even like the, you know, having ankle monitors or anything on illegal, these are illegal aliens waiting for some court date or some other kind of proceeding. But of course, if they're not in detention, the odds that they're actually going to show up are lower than if they are in detention. That's kind of the whole point to immigrant detention, to make sure that people show up and don't run off and disappear. But it's a complicated issue. There's a lot of wrinkles to it. And so I just thought it would be good for Art to come in and kind of walk us through what the story is with detention so that when politicians and activist groups talk about this, you'll have some grounding in what this issue is. So thanks for coming in, Art. If you could just start with why do we detain immigrants? The detention of immigrants actually goes back more than a century to a time when most immigrants to the United States arrived by steamship to this country. If an immigrant was not clearly admissible to the United States, then the immigration law required that they be detained, detained throughout the entire process to determine whether, in fact, they should be admitted to the United States. And if they were ultimately determined not to be admissible to the United States, it was the responsibility of the steamship line to then transport them back home. And just uh, since the Godfather movie is the source of all wisdom, remember in Godfather 2, where they have flashbacks to Vito as a child, he was actually detained at Ellis Island, right, for some kind of health reasons. And then when he, whatever his illness was, cleared up, then he was let in. Yeah, young Vito Annalini shows up at Ellis Island and in a bit of artistic license, He's renamed after his hometown of Corleone in Sicily. Which never happened, actually, at Ellis Island. Yeah, no, they were, they were meticulous about making sure, for exactly the reasons that I just described, each of the steamship lines was required to provide a list of passengers, and each of the individuals on the ship had to match up with the list of passengers. So, yes, but young Vito Annalini was determined to have what appears to be tuberculosis and therefore was placed in the hospital at Ellis Island 
where he stares out at the New York uh, right, skyline. Exactly. So that's a prime example of what we're talking about. And that was back in the Immigration Act of 1903. That was carried forward into the Immigration Act of 1952, arriving aliens in the United States, if they were not clearly admissible to the United States, were required to be detained. In 1996, when Congress did away with the distinction between excludability and deportability, Congress carried forward that mandate for the detention of arriving aliens. In the case of an illegal migrant at the southwest border or an alien who presents him or herself at the port of entry without proper documents, detention is mandated under the Immigration and Nationality Act from the point at which they are encountered to the point at which they are either removed from the United States or that they're granted some sort of relief or benefit that would allow them to remain in the United States. This is what's referred to as the detention mandate at the southwest border. Since this is audio only, you'll explain this, but mandate maybe we should put in quotation marks because, in fact, the majority of people who by law are mandated to be detained are not being detained at the southwest border right now. Yeah, that's correct. And we can actually date the period at which that occurred. On December the 8th, 2009, then ICE Director John Morton issued a directive that stated that any arriving alien who had passed a credible fear interview, and I can explain that, should be considered for parole and, if they're not a flight risk or a danger to the community, be paroled into the United States. This isn't like criminal parole. This is immigration parole in which you're allowed to enter the country. It's basically a form of release. Part of what they did in 1996, what Congress did in 1996, was to allow for the expedited removal of illegal aliens without proper documents. Again, as the name suggests, to speed up their being thrown out of the country rather than be fed into the whole immigration court process. That's correct. So that gave DHS the authority, then INS, now DHS, the authority to quickly remove those aliens from the United States. In 2004, that was extended to migrants who were apprehended within a certain distance from the U.S. border. And so all of those people were supposed to be detained until they were removed. Now, one of the exceptions to the expedited removal rule is any alien who requests asylum or claims a fear of harm if returned to their home country is to be interviewed by an asylum officer from USCIS to determine whether they might be eligible for asylum. Again, it's a very low standard. Between FY2008 and the fourth quarter of FY2019, about 83% of all aliens who claimed credible fear were found to have credible fear. And way more people are claiming to fear return than before 2009 when Morton changed the right. rules. So that, in other words, they're using it as they're gaming the system as a way to avoid detention. Right. So between 2004 and FY 2009, before Morton actually issued that directive, only about 5,000 individuals apprehended at the border who were subject to expedited removal, or about 5%, claimed a credible fear. After Morton issued that directive, smugglers determined that this was a way that illegal migrants could get released into the United States. If they claimed credible fear, there was a high likelihood that they were going to actually meet the standard because it's very low. And if they were found to have credible fear, then they could be released into the country. Again, contrary to law, because under the detention mandate, 
even if they prove that they have a credible fear of return and therefore, you know, can claim asylum, they're still supposed to be detained that whole time. They're still supposed to be detained. A couple of things coincided that, you know, prompted that exception, that Morton directive to go unchallenged. One, there's been a strong development in case laws relates to challenging executive actions as relate to immigration since about 2015. Just to clear that up, you mean before that, it was harder to challenge. Yeah, before So that's two, why he basically got away with it. He got away with it because there really wasn't any standing for states or individuals to challenge proposals like that. Right. Two, we were talking about a very small population of people, only about 5,000 aliens every year. But by 2019, those 5,000 people claiming credible fear had jumped up to 105,000 people, a 19.5 time increase in the number of people claiming credible fear. And the only explanation for that is that they knew that if they claimed credible fear, they would get released, they would be accepted from that release standard. The Trump administration didn't change the Morton Directive because they couldn't. By that point, there were so many people who were coming to the United States illegally, the DHS lacked the detention space. So what? So in other words, as a practical matter, they couldn't end it. They legally could, but where would they put people, basically? Right. So at that point under the Trump administration, there were only about 55,000 detention beds. And again, if we're talking about a population of 105,000 people, you're just not going to have enough detention. So what the Trump administration did instead was it implemented something called the Migrant Protection Protocols, MPP, which is probably better known to most of the listeners as Remain in Mexico. There's a provision in the Immigration and Nationality Act that allows DHS, in lieu of detaining those arriving aliens if they come across a land border, to send them back across the border to await their removal hearings. And that's exactly what MPP did. About 70,000 people were sent back to Mexico under the Trump administration, under Remain in Mexico, and it was very effective. Because basically the point of either detention or Remain in Mexico was to avoid the people getting on a bus at McAllen and disappearing into the United States. That's kind of the thing. Even if they show up for hearings, maybe they will, maybe they won't. The point either of MPP or detention is to ensure that people actually comply with whatever decision we make about their status? It's twofold, actually. So one is to ensure that they are available for us to remove if we determine that they are inadmissible. Also, the reason that people come to the United States without proper documents or illegally, you know, be it on a steamship or by crossing the Rio Grande, is to enter the United States and live and work here. Both detention and MPP deny aliens who have not been determined to be admissible to the United States, don't have a benefit or a right to be here, the ability to remain in the United States until that determination. Basically denies them what they're trying to get until we decide that they can have it. That's exactly correct. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, as you said, it was a small population before that Obama administration decision to just release people. And then it ballooned. It really reminded me of all kinds of other things like that. Remember, we changed the rules for unaccompanied minors. Well, there weren't very many of them. I think both lawmakers and administration people at the time probably figured, well, what's the harm? It's a small thing. In other words, they weren't thinking dynamically. They weren't thinking in terms of incentives. They were looking at what was in front of them and they said, well, it's just 5,000 people. What's the big deal? You know what I mean? What's the harm? 
And when they changed the policy, that then changed the incentives and it ballooned and exploded. Yeah. And as it relates to unaccompanied alien children, you know, I have no doubt that the individuals that proposed that had the best of intentions. Unfortunately, it ended up having the worst of results. Every child that comes across the U.S. border that is smuggled to this country is traumatized and they're endangered. If this were to occur in the United States, if I were to go to the street corner in Baltimore, Maryland, my erstwhile hometown, and find a person who I didn't know who was a criminal to take my child to San Francisco, I would be charged with endangerment. And yet, this is the practical thing that those laws that benefit the release of alien children into the United States encourage. So again, plainly done with the best of intentions, but anybody who really understood the system would know that it was going to end up with the worst of results. Yeah, well, I mean, again, the road to a broken border is paved with good intentions. So just for a little background, what kinds of detention are there? You were a judge in a detention facility. Are they all run by ICE? Some of them are contracted, right? Some of them are family detention centers. How's that, how's that work? So there are a variety of forms of detention in the United States. I worked in a county prison, the York County Prison in York, Pennsylvania, that primarily held people awaiting criminal proceedings or who had been convicted of you know, minor offenses, misdemeanors, drunk driving, things like non, that. These are all non-immigration people. That's the non-immigration side. Right. York County would contract bed space to the federal government to detain people on behalf of ICE, on behalf of DHS at the facility. And they were treated appropriately. The officers at the facility knew that these weren't criminals, you know, knew well, that- Well, probably weren't. Some right, of they probably be. weren't criminals and that they were immigration detainees. So they were treated accordingly. There are also ICE-run facilities around the United States, and those are places that exist strictly to detain immigration detainees. And then there are also private facilities, although the Biden administration dislikes this, run by private organizations that contract with the federal government to provide that detention space while those individuals are awaiting their hearings. One of the things, I visited a county jail in Alabama that had the same kind of deal you were referring to as in Pennsylvania. And correct me if I'm wrong, but is it always the case, this was the case in the Alabama one, it was a totally separate facility. It was all run by the same thing, but the local people locked up for drunk driving or what have you were not mixed with the immigrant detainees. And it was also interesting that the immigration detainees, they were classified into three groups based on how dangerous they might be. And like one in two could intermix, but one in three couldn't, who were the, like say three was the most dangerous, whereas two and three could, as far as when people were let out to just mingle and hang around and eat and stuff. And the other thing that was interesting that I asked the manager of the whole county jail I said, so do you start your staff working in the immigration section and then move them up to the regular county jail? And he said, no, no, it's the other way around because ICE's standards were so high that he always started new people in the regular jail. And only then, once he got a sense for whether people were responsible and what have you, picked the ones that were most likely to be able to follow the rules to actually work in the immigrant detention thing. So my point is the standards were higher 
the place I went to than in a regular county lockup. Yeah, no, and that was exactly the way that it was at the York County Prison. Now, it was all one facility, but the various housing units were segregated. So immigration detainees were only held with immigration detainees, the criminal, or in a, a separate section. The other thing was that, you know, as a judge, I would regularly go through the facility. I would dine in the dining hall. I would work out in the fitness room. So, you know, I knew the facility. I didn't have to rely on hearsay or what people had told me. And I could see the standards under which the people were detained. And, you know, like most of my judge colleagues, like most of my ICE colleagues, they expected the officers to comport themselves accordingly. You know, again, most of these people were not criminals. Now, there were criminals and they were held under higher levels of security. We had a special housing unit for individuals who posed a danger to others. But, you know, each of those individuals was segregated. So ICE has high standards. They have uh, national detention standards that those facilities are expected to meet. In fact, one of my jobs in my career was as oversight counsel for immigration. I performed that for both House Judiciary and House Oversight. And I would visit facilities to make sure that they, you know, had the proper food, proper medical facilities. One facility we really haven't touched on, though, are the family facilities. Now, the Biden administration is phasing out family detention if it hasn't already. That's where families are kept together with the kids and the parents. Right. So when parents and kids show up at the southwest border, if they enter illegally, again, by law, they're supposed to be detained. Now, there are court cases that involve how long they can be detained. But I had the opportunity to visit the family detention center in Dilly, Texas. It had a school at which, you know, the kids attended class every day. It had a full library. It had a legal library that they could go to. They had internet access. They had wonderful dining halls. I ate at every dining hall that I ever got the chance. I ate the same food they had, and it was good. They had recreational facilities, basketball courts, soccer fields. Dilly, I think, actually had karaoke and yoga classes that parents could go to while their kids were in school. I also had jurisdiction over, when I was a judge, over the Burks Family Shelter in Burks County, Pennsylvania. Yeah, I've been to that one, actually. Yeah, It's smaller, I think, than the one in Dilly. It's a little more modest facility, I believe. But there was food every place. There was a school and everything. The interesting thing was about that is I talked to some of the people there. Nobody's detained there very long. In other words, it's a relatively brief thing, obviously, because if they're kids, they have to be let go. So in some sense, sort of what's the point if you're going to be letting everybody go within 20 days or 21 days and their cases haven't been resolved yet? So there was a 2015 decision in Flores versus... It was Reno at that point, wasn't it? Well, it was Holder or... uh, Whatever, yeah, anyway. That interpreted a 1997 settlement agreement entered into by my former boss, Janet Reno, and Jenny Flores and a group of plaintiffs. That 2015 decision was actually issued in response to an attempt by the Obama administration to detain a large number of immigrant families that had come into the United States. They wanted to deter other immigrant families from entering illegally, and so they were placing families in military bases around the United States. The Flores plaintiffs challenged that and said that they could only be held in licensed facilities. And the judge, one Dolly G of the United States District Court in Los Angeles. Which is their actual name. 
sided with, yes, it is, sided with the plaintiffs in that case and, you know, just made up a random number, 20 days, that both the parents and the kids could be held before they had to be released. The Ninth Circuit the next year stepped in and said, no, you got to release the kids within 20 days. Again, they just sort of accepted the, you know, arbitrary figure, but they could hold the parents. But in order to ensure that we didn't have family separation, generally the parents were released too. And we saw a huge jump in the number of families, family units, you know, adults who brought a child with them specifically to be released into the United States. A 2019 bipartisan report found that in all too many cases, those children were pawns of the smugglers and the parents who were simply attempting to enter the United States illegally and called upon Congress to fix Flores and, you know, to allow the detention of those families. Congress failed to act then and has not acted in the interim. Right. So it's a big surprise. Again, when you incentivize something, you get more of it. If you get let go, if you bring a kid with you, more illegal immigrants are going to be kids with them to be let go. So what are the consequences of this really started in Obama with the Morton directive, but then really accelerated now under Biden? The consequences of reducing and ultimately their goal is to eliminate immigration detention. Yeah. The biggest problem that this creates is it just encourages more people to enter the United States illegally. Again, what was true in 1903 of steamships is true in 2022 at the Southwest border. People come to the United States illegally or improperly in order to live and work in the United States. The more people who are released into the United States, the more people we see coming. There were more Border Patrol apprehensions in FY 2021 than in any year in history. And those statistics go back all the way to 1924. FY 2022 is already on track to exceed that number. So, you know, this just shows that the Biden administration policies are encouraging more people to enter the United States illegally. One study that the Center for Immigration Studies has done has found that the illegal population in the United States, the number of illegal aliens in this country, has increased 1.4 million under the Biden administration. This is a a huge number of people. This is more illegal migrants coming in at one period of time than ever in history. And it's going to have significant effects. We already see the effects that it has communities across the United States, but in particular at those border towns. In Yuma, Arizona, in December, the mayor had to declare an emergency because the town was so overwhelmed by the number of migrants. In September, in Del Rio, Texas, we saw 30,000 migrants descend upon a town that has about you know 22,000 people in it all at once. Border Patrol was overwhelmed. They couldn't even provide housing for them. The individuals themselves were building shanties along the banks of the Rio Grande waiting for processing by the Border Patrol because they expected, logically and correctly, that, you know, most of them were going to be released. And the interesting thing is this administration's response to that, to those problems of border towns being overwhelmed and burdened, which is a real problem, their response is not reducing the flow of people coming in. Recently, the administration announced they're going to pay, use taxpayer money to bust those people away from the border, to move them to LA and Houston and elsewhere so that they're not overburdening these towns, which is kind of missing the point. The point is there's too many illegal immigrants crossing because they have an incentive to do so. Now, one of the arguments that opponents of detention make, and basically the, you know, the opponents of borders are the same people as the opponents of 
detention. They're all sort of the same crowd. Is that there are alternatives to detention. In fact, that's the name of the program, the Alternatives to Detention, ATD program. Whether it's, you know, an ankle monitor or some kind of app on your phone or whatever it is, and that that is better and cheaper than detention. So what's your thoughts about that? Well, let me go to the cheaper part first, because I actually ran the numbers to determine how much detention would cost as opposed to alternatives to detention, ankle monitors or giving people cell phones with GPS technology that we can track them while they're in the United States as long as they have the phones. Detention costs about $6,080 per alien. Alternatives to detention, on the other hand, cost $9,167 per alien over the lifetime of the program. And why is that? Because if you're in detention, you know, you got to feed these people. You need staff to watch them. You need a place to house them. How could it be that alternatives to detention are more expensive? Because when aliens are detained, you know, during that admissibility determination process, their cases generally proceed rather quickly. It takes about 40 days from the beginning of the case to the end of the case to, you know, make that determination. It's about $157 a day to detain them during that period. With ATD, however, that period gets stretched out for years. It's only about $9 or, you know, a little bit less than that per day. But there are so many more days that the costs start to build up. So it's cheaper, but they make it up in volume. They make it up, exactly. And, you know, with respect to it being more humane, You know, I worked in a detained facility. I had jurisdiction over and have seen family facilities. We provide for those individuals. We provide them medical care, dental care, psychological care if they need it, food, clothing, education. The United States government provides that to those people. If they're released, it's up to them to feed themselves, to house themselves. Now, again, and, you know, if they need medical care, They're not going to go to the, you know, staff doctor. They're going to go to an emergency room and they're going to overburden those emergency rooms throughout the United States or they'll go without. Right. So it's neither more humane nor is it cheaper to release individuals on ATD. And anyone who tells you that is wrong. Now, one of the arguments that people make also about detention, the opponents of detention make, is that it's unnecessary. Because, as you said, the point of detention really is to make sure that people show up and we know where they are and what have you. And what the opponents say is, well, 99% of people show up for their hearings anyway. This detention is just gratuitous cruelty and there's no functional purpose to it. What's your answer to that? Yeah, no, that's incorrect, too. I mean, all you need to do is look at the 1.2 million aliens who are under final orders of removal in the United States, which is, you know, larger than the population of most cities in this country, to understand the fact that the only sure way to guarantee that people are removed is if they're detained. 100% of the people that I ordered removed whose appeals were denied in my court were removed. And so that 1.2 million number you said, those are people ordered removed. They have a final order of removal, but they're still here. That's the point is that we either don't know where they are or nobody's looking for them. And so even though they've been ordered removed, they're just going about their business anyway. Yeah, no. And, you know, as a lawyer, due process, as a former judge, due process is absolutely crucial to me. These are individuals who have received due process. They've gone through the entire process The law says they're supposed to be removed in addition to the detention mandate at the front. 
There's a detention mandate at the back. Every alien who's under a final order is supposed to be taken into custody and removed within 90 days. In 1.2 million cases, that didn't happen. You know, that is the problem. You're never going to be able to control immigration in the United States if you don't utilize detention as Congress has stated. Congress wasn't mean or angry or, you know, acting maliciously when it created the detention mandate. It understood human nature and it knew that if you allowed people to be released into the continental republic that is the United States, they're going to disappear and finding them is going to be next to impossible. Even if you wanted to. And this administration doesn't even allow ICE to do that. One thing that always struck me about that 1.2 million people who've been ordered deported but are basically fugitives, even though fugitive is probably the wrong word because it sounds more furtive and hiding. In other words, they're probably just continuing to work at the same illegal jobs they had before and living in the same places. But those people got a letter saying that their cases had been decided against them and that they should turn themselves in in the dark humor of the immigration bureaucracy, they call that run letters of letters telling you to run. Even apart from detention, wouldn't it just make more sense to send a letter saying your case has been decided, please come in and find out what we decided. That way you just take them into custody if the decision was no. Well, and that's the interesting thing. You know, it's not like most judge decisions, immigration judge decisions are in writing and mailed out to people, they're actually in court when they get that uh, oh, really? order okay. of removal. Now, yeah. they do get a written decision on their appeal from the Board of Immigration Appeals. There's no reason that DHS doesn't take every person who's ordered removed by an immigration judge into right removal yeah. in the court. Right, yeah. That is kind of weird. Why doesn't that happen? I mean, what, they, they're given then 30 days to present themselves or something? I mean, yeah, so... Yeah. They're given 30 days to file an appeal, Okay, but there's nothing that says that they can't be detained during that 30-day period. And, you know, quite frankly, correctly, they should. If they file an appeal, you can let them go. If they don't file an appeal, they're right there and you can take them. Right, right. But yeah, you know, the current process right now is to send what's called a bag and baggage letter. That's the run letter that you're alluding to, telling them to show up at a place at a certain time and date so that they can with be their, removed. With their luggage. Basically. With their luggage. Yeah. And the reason they're called run letters is because that tells you, you know, it's ICE is looking for, well, under yeah. every previous administration had told you that ICE was looking for you, not under the Biden administration, because, and again, as an immigration judge, I take offense at this, and this isn't, uh, you know, bloviation or, or anything else. Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security, has said he doesn't necessarily agree that all those 1.2 million people have received due process. They had the right to appear before a judge. They had the right to take an appeal to the Board of Immigration Appeals. They had the right to file a petition. Those are the courts that make that determination. That's not a determination for Alejandro Mayorkas, who has never been a judge in his life, to second guess. It's not his job. It's not his responsibility. It violates the Constitution, in my mind, and it's just simply offensive. Now, the issue of detention is, to finish up here, is at the center of that Supreme Court case on the Remain in Mexico issue, because as you suggested, the law requires either detention or something like Remain in Mexico. The the law doesn't say Remain in Mexico, but it's under that provision of the law. And so, what could the various implications be of different ways SCOTUS might decide this case for the issue of immigrant detention? So there are two factors in tension here. 
One is the detention mandate is written in mandatory language, you know, shall be detained, which appears three times in the inspection section, section 235 of the Immigration and Nationality Act. The other tension, however, is prosecutorial discretion. Now, the courts will generally read mandatory language as mandatory, but when you're talking about a law enforcement function, the courts generally give a certain amount of latitude to law enforcement agencies to use their discretion. Mm -hmm. This is beyond discretion, what the Biden administration is doing, because, you know, it's been turned on their head. It's almost as if they act like they have the discretion to detain and everybody else should be released. And, you know, that is one of the points that the state plaintiffs in that case, Texas versus Biden, are making. Actually, it's Biden versus Texas now before the Supreme Court because Texas has prevailed twice. Right. Are making is, you know, that's a mandate. It's a mandate that is there for a reason and it should be enforced. And the government is arguing, well, no, we have the prosecutorial discretion. Whether or not the Supreme Court allows that prosecutorial discretion exception to swallow the congressional rule is going to be the major issue. You basically have two branches of government in front of the third one arguing that their side is correct. Interesting. So the oral arguments on that already took place, right? And when is it? Sometime this summer is when the ruling is likely to come out? Yeah, it should be issued before July 4th because that is when the Supreme Court ends its session. Oh, So it could come out any day. Interesting. Okay, well, good. When it does, maybe we'll have you back to talk about it. I will also note, Mark, that, you know, I have made several observations. I've noted the fact that the state plaintiffs in that case missed some pretty key points. It's possible that the Supreme Court decision could be issued in error, which means that this would all be teed up for yet another decision. Interesting. Great. So um, thank you, Art and Arthur. We've been talking about detention, sort of what the issues are in immigrant detention, where it came from, what's the point. And the news peg, of course, is that the Supreme Court has this case, this Remain in Mexico case before it, and will be ruling, issuing a ruling on it at some point relatively soon. And so we wanted to give listeners basically a little bit of background, a little bit of grounding in what the issue here is. Thank you, Art, and we may well have you back once there's a Supreme Court ruling on this. Thank you, Mark. And finally, I wanted to talk about an important court case that just came out over this past week. It was a federal court, a federal judge in Texas vacated, which is to say basically canceled, the DHS guidelines for who ICE agents are allowed to arrest and what hoops they have to jump through before they're allowed to arrest an illegal alien, even a criminal alien. This there's called the prosecutorial discretion memo or a priorities memo. There were several issued, two right at the beginning of the Biden administration. Those were put on hold by the judge. But then this was a ruling on the memo that was issued in November that was sort of the definitive final version that the Biden administration had, at least in their estimation, had fully lawyered up and thought that it could make it stick. And the judge canceled it. I mean, he didn't even just temporarily stay it. He said he vacated it is the language that's used. In other words, it's canceled. Now, that ruling is, doesn't go into effect for seven days. By the time you hear this, that may already be up. Uh, the seven days may be up or close to it. The point being to give the government a chance to appeal. I don't know, but it seems likely they will. But it's interesting because what these priorities 
sought to do basically is to prevent illegal immigrants from being deported unless they were really, really the worst of the worst, the handful of you know, axe murderers and that sort of thing, that regular illegal immigrants, even with criminal convictions, even with serious criminal convictions, would not end up being deported. They might serve their time in prison, but they wouldn't face immigration consequences. And that illegal immigrants who were not involved in crime basically would be and are exempted from enforcement. The judge threw that out on two basic grounds. It's more sort of detailed than this, but basically he said that procedurally, the administration didn't jump through the necessary hoops to change policy, and that the way they did it was, in the words of the Administrative Procedure Act, quote, arbitrary and capricious, unquote. And that whole part of it is especially delicious because those are the bases that Trump's immigration changes were, uh, many of them were put on hold by lawsuits by Democrats to prevent the changes that the Trump administration tried to make, and that now these things are coming back to bite them. But also, the judge said, you know, even if they jumped through all the hoops procedurally, that there were provisions in these memos that were specifically contrary to law. In 1996, Congress passed a broad immigration enforcement measure part of which was driven by a concern that back then the INS was letting too many criminal aliens go. And Congress required that criminal aliens be taken into custody when they were released from whatever state or local custody they were in. In other words, they were serving, say, 18 months for some drug crime that they were then required to be detained when they finished their sentences and that criminals under a final order of removal, in other words, a deportation order where they'd exhausted their appeals, that they also should be detained. And those requirements, legal requirements in the Immigration and Nationality Act are specifically opposed by this administration, this Biden administration policy. And so the judge threw out this so-called prosecutorial discretion memo on those two basic grounds, both procedural, but then also substantive. And what this means is that presumably, if it sticks, if the appeals court upholds this ruling, that ICE agents will be able to actually do their jobs again. And it's ironic that the administration, the Biden administration, is defending these kind of measures on the basis of what they call prosecutorial discretion, where law enforcement is able to decide, you know, make decisions in particular cases, exercise their discretion as to whether they're going to enforce a particular rule in a particular case. And some kind of discretion is always necessary. But what these so-called prosecutorial discretion memos did was actually take away the discretion from ICE agents. So an ICE agent who, you know, say arrested a criminal alien that they found and then found out that there were two other illegal aliens accompanying him under earlier versions, even somewhat looser versions under the Obama administration, they would not be allowed to take those two extra collateral illegal aliens, as it were, into custody under the current 
Biden rules that have just been canceled, ICE often wouldn't even be allowed to take the criminal alien himself into custody. But my point here is that without these kind of straitjackets imposed by an anti-enforcement political administration, the ICE agents say arrest a criminal alien and the two other illegal immigrants that they encounter, you know, maybe they do want to take a pass on them for whatever reason. Maybe one of them is an informant, maybe whatever it is. In other words, ICE agents, in fact, now are able to exercise their discretion, at least if this ruling sticks, in a way that ironically, under the rubric of prosecutorial discretion, it actually took away the discretion from actual field agents to decide what in this particular case, how to proceed. So it seems to me this ruling is all to the good. We'll see if it holds in appeals and we'll see what the Biden administration's response is. But the bottom line is the administration's attempt to gut interior immigration enforcement and essentially to abolish ICE without formally getting rid of the bureaucratic agency has run into yet one more roadblock. They may overcome this. We don't know. But at least for now, this ruling ensures that the Biden administration won't completely be able to abolish ICE, at least for now. That's it for this week. This is Mark Krikorian for Parsing Immigration Policy. If your podcast platform allows it, please rank or write a review about this podcast. And if you have any comments, positive, negative, or otherwise, feel free to just email me at msk, that's my initials, Mark Stephen Krikorian, msk at cis.org. I hope you'll tune in next week. 